0: Well, last week, we covered three important saints, Augustine or Augustine of Hippo, and we talked about Jerome, who translated the Bible into Latin, he translated the Latin Vulgate and the Apocrypha, and then we finished with St. Patrick who was a Briton that ended up a slave in Ireland and then returned to evangelize Ireland for 30 years. Tonight, we're going to begin talking about a very different person and a different type of person. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for this evening. Thank you for this journey through history. Thank you for giving us your story. Thank you for giving us your word. Father, help us to be a people hungry to know you, hungry to know your story, hungry to know how you work among your people to bring about your plan and your purpose. Thank you for making us a part of your story. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for giving us life and allowing us to live on this earth and to be a part of this grand story that you are writing, that you are authoring, and that you will bring to complete consummation one day with the glorious return of the Lord Jesus Christ, who will rule and reign on this earth forever and ever, and we, his people, will rule and reign with him. Father, we thank you for these promises given to us in Christ. Bless our time together tonight, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. All right. I want to start um, before we talk about our first character tonight. We're really only going to talk about really one person specifically, and then we're going to uh, let that kind of transition us into a broader topic. But I want to read, uh, I want us to go to the book of Daniel right now, Daniel chapter 1. And we read this scripture as we began our study in the timeline. We, ran it spe- we read it specifically when we were looking at the kingdoms, uh, the four kingdoms here beginning uh, in Daniel's prophecy in Daniel chapter 1. I want to return to that scripture tonight, the dream of Nebuchadnezzar, the dream of the great image that he had, and Daniel, who gave him the interpretation of that dream. I want to return to that, and I want to um, look at this again. Let's begin in verse um, 31. Daniel says to Nebuchadnezzar, you, O king, were watching, and behold, a great image. This great image, whose splendor was excellent, stood before you, and its form was awesome. This image's head was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. You watched while a stone was cut out without hands, which struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed together and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors. The wind carried them away so that no trace of them was found, and the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This is the dream. Now we will tell the interpretation of it before the king. You, O king, are a king of kings, for the God of heaven has given you a kingdom, power, strength, And glory, and wherever the children of men dwell, or the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heaven, he has given them into your hand, and has made you ruler over them all. You are this head of gold. But after you shall arise another kingdom inferior to yours, then another, a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth, And the fourth kingdom shall be as strong as iron inasmuch as iron breaks in pieces and shatters everything. And like iron that crushes, that kingdom will break in pieces and crush all others. Whereas you saw the feet and toes partly of potter's clay and partly of iron the kingdom shall be divided, yet the strength of the iron shall be in it, just as you saw the iron mixed with ceramic clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly of iron and partly of clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly fragile. As you saw iron mixed with ceramic clay, they will mingle with the seed of men But they will not adhere to one another, just as iron does not mix with clay. And in the days of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to other people. It shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever." And inasmuch as you saw that stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God has made known to the king what will come to pass after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation is sure. That is the word of the Lord. Okay, now the reason I read that scripture is because tonight we're going to look at that period in history where the Western Roman Empire fell. And I wanted to start here because Daniel predicts the fall of this empire. And Daniel, uh, as God gave Nebuchadnezzar this dream of this image uh, as we look at history, we'll see that that image and that interpretation, as Daniel said, the interpretation, interpretation is sure. Um, this is about a thousand years before the fall of the Roman Empire that these words are given to Daniel in interpretation of Nebuchadnezzar's dream. So it will be just just a little bit over a thousand years before these words will utterly be brought to pass. Now, they are being fulfilled from the very time that Daniel gave the interpretation, from the very time that Nebuchadnezzar had the dream, because remember, he was the head of gold. And the kingdom that came after, the kingdom of silver, was the Medo-Persian Empire, not as great as the Babylonian Empire, an inferior kingdom, but they defeated Babylon, overthrew it, and then a third empire of bronze would come to power and rule the whole earth, and that is the Greek Empire. That is the empire of Alexander the Great, and Alexander did rule the whole earth. as as it was known then. And then, of course, Alexander's kingdom. Now, Daniel goes on, and there's other dreams and other visions that give even greater detail about what will happen to these kingdoms. For instance, the division of Alexander's empire into four parts between his four generals, divided uh, according to the four winds of heaven. That's exactly what happened. And we know that in time that kingdom was overtaken by the Roman Empire, and the Roman Empire, beginning somewhere around, we'll just we'll just say, really the empire really began around 30 B.C. and that empire continued uh, for the next 500 years until it fell around 476 A.D. In uh, what Daniel lays out here in his prophecy is is very um, accurate. So you notice that looking really at this fourth kingdom, because that's Rome, in verse 40 he says, and the fourth kingdom shall be as strong as iron. And Rome was the strongest of all of these empires. Inasmuch as iron breaks in pieces and shatters everything and like iron that crushes, that kingdom will break in pieces and crush all others. And that's exactly what Rome did. Whereas you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, the kingdom shall be divided. And that is what happened to this kingdom. This kingdom ultimately divided into an eastern and a western uh, empire. And we looked at that. Uh, It divided under Domitian. And then when Constantine came to power, he reunited the empire, but it's going to divide again later in its history. And when, when Rome, the Western Roman Empire falls, it is the Western Empire. It is the Western half of that divided empire that falls in 476. The Eastern half of that empire continues on for another thousand years. And notice that it talks about the mingling of bronze and clay. And in verse 43, as you saw iron mixed with ceramic clay, they will mingle with the seed of men, but they will not adhere to one another. That is such an accurate picture of what happened to the, to the Western Roman Empire in its fall. And the Western Roman Empire is significant because that was where the Roman Empire was centered. The capital was Rome for most of its history, not all of its history, but for most of its history. And certainly when the Caesars were ruling, Rome was the capital city and the center of power of this fourth empire was in Rome. And it was the fall of that Roman Empire that marked really the end of and the fulfillment of this vision, I believe. But notice he says they will mingle with the seed of men and they will not adhere to one another just as iron does not mix with clay. But in the days of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. So in large part, this prophecy has been fulfilled, but it is still being fulfilled because that kingdom that God, the God of heaven has set up and shall never be destroyed is that kingdom that is growing and filling the earth right now. There will not be a revival of the Roman Empire, contrary to what dispensationalists believe. The Roman Empire has been swallowed up by the kingdom that shall never be destroyed. And really, even before even before Rome fell technically, the empire had already been conquered by the kingdom of God. So, with that prophecy in mind, let's move back to our timeline. And we are in the mid-5th century. In 433 or 434, a ruler came to power over a great empire. His name was Attila, Attila the Hun. Attila became ruler of the Huns by the year 434. And Attila ruled the Huns until 453. So, if you think about that, that is really uh, 20 years. For 20 years, Attila ruled the Huns, and for 20 years, he took control of a vast uh, swath of land, um, almost as big as the Roman Empire. Attila the Hun was ruler over, the the, the people were called the Huns. Nobody really knows exactly where they came from. They came out of Central Asia. And he didn't just rule over the Huns. He ruled over a number of people groups, but he was a Hun. And his people were the Huns out of Central Asia. And he, they were a nomadic people. So they didn't have a, Like a capital city, he didn't have a palace. It wasn't anything like the Roman Empire. These were nomadic people. They were horse people. Horses were very integral to everything they did. From eating horse meat to drinking horse milk to using horses for all kinds of things. And they lived in Central Asia. They lived in the Caucasus and in in the areas of Eastern Europe there. So think of parts of of Western Russia, Eastern Europe, uh, the areas along the Black Sea, the north coast of the Black Sea, over to the Caspian Sea, up to the, the Baltic Sea. That's where Attila and his empire expanded to. Uh, It is said that Attila fielded an army of over 500,000 men, and the Romans and the Germans called him the scourge of God. He was feared by everyone. Uh, It is said that the Huns, when their children were born, they would scar their faces to teach them to be able to endure pain and hardship. And so they were a very scary looking people. Um, they were short, they were stocky, they were mostly bow-legged because they they lived on their horses. They they ate their meals and cooked their food on their horses. There's all kinds of interesting stories about them. Um, And so Attila led this people, fielding an army of over half a million men. He was a very able, if not great, military leader. The Hun Empire covered these regions that we talked about, Eastern Europe, Central Asia, as far west as the Danube River. So, if you can envision a map of Asia and Europe in your mind, and you know where the Caspian Sea is, and then uh, to the west of the Caspian Sea is the Black Sea, which is in the news a lot today. Why? There's a war being fought over there. The Russian Navy's in the Black Sea fighting uh, Ukraine. And so this area of the Balkans of Ukraine and and, in southern parts of Russia, that, that is the area we're talking about. All the way up to the Baltic Sea along the eastern coast of the Danube River. The Danube River is the second longest river in Europe. The the longest is the Volga River. And so this Hun empire covered a large area. In 447, Attila the Hun began his blitz of terror by invading the Eastern Roman Empire. And he did not conquer it, and he did not conquer Constantinople. But the emperor at that time, Theodosius II, agreed to pay tribute to Attila to stop his incursions And his assaults on the empire. And Attila took the deal. So the Eastern Roman Empire began to pay tribute to Attila. Now, what do you think that did for Attila? Did it satisfy him and he decided to go home and say, I'm good with that? No, it actually emboldened him. So he was empowered and he thought, hmm, if the Eastern Roman Empire will pay tribute to me, I wonder what the Western Roman Empire will do. So in 451, Attila not not only received tribute from the Western Roman Empire, but he was given land south of the Danube River to appease him, but it did not appease him. It actually emboldened him, and he then decided that he would invade the region of Gaul. Gaul is what we would call modern-day France. Uh, Gaul in the Roman Empires where France is today, that region of Europe. And he crossed the Rhine River in 451 and began to wreak havoc in Gaul. Well, in June of 451, remember the Romans had paid tribute to him, had given him land thinking it would appease him, and it did not. He went ahead and just took the money and ran right over. Western Europe. And so in June of 451, the Romans and various other tribes, but mainly it was the Romans and the Visigoths. The Romans and the king of the Visigoths joined forces to stop Attila, and they met at this place called Chalons-sur-Marne, or there's, there's about five different names for this battle, but it was in, in this area of France. It's one of the bloodiest battles in history. It is said that 162,000 men died on that battlefield. Uh, the king of the Visigoths was killed in battle. Now remember, they're fighting with the Romans at this point because they have a common enemy. Uh, Attila survived, uh, but it stopped his incursions into Gaul. And But within a year, he decided he would invade Rome. So he makes an incursion across the Alps down into Italy with an intention on invading Rome, but he doesn't do it. He, he stops short. It is said that some church official, somebody um, stopped him, was able to convince him not to attack Rome for whatever reason. He did not take Rome. I don't think it's because he didn't have the military might to do it. He turned around and went back home, basically. And in 453, he died unexpectedly in his bed. His sons, uh, they think he had a brain aneurysm, actually. Uh, His sons took the empire, but they were not capable rulers. And so about as quickly as the... The Hun Empire rose to power. It just faded. But the rise of Attila, the Hun, and his success in doing real damage to the Roman Empire, the Western Roman Empire, was another sign of Rome's slow decline that was accelerating rapidly at this point. So, if we... If we move to 476, that is the date given of the actual fall of the Roman Empire. But let's, let's talk about that. So what fell in 476? Well, it is said the Western Roman Empire fell. Remember, in Constantinople in the east, modern-day Istanbul, Constantinople was the capital of the Eastern Empire. And it was still going very strong. In fact, when the Western Roman Empire fell, and as it it didn't just happen all of a sudden, people began to migrate to the east because there was stability in the east. So if we think about the Roman Empire, the Roman Empire at its height, which was around 98 AD, ruled almost all of Europe, parts of the Middle East, and the northern coast of Africa. The Romans even claimed the Mediterranean Sea as their own. Their name for the Mediterranean Sea was Mer Nostrum, which meant our sea. That's, that was their name for it. This is our sea. More territory. So if you think, if you can envision in a map, and I should have made you a map, but I didn't. But if you can think about that large area of land that Rome ruled from Little Italy, what did it take to rule that amount of territory and that vast numbers of people groups? It took a lot. So more territory required more soldiers to protect that territory. And there was a finite number of Roman soldiers, of actual Romans. And so, what Rome did was they hired, they hired mercenary armies. I mean, they would take over people and they would inscript those people into the army. They would train them as Roman soldiers and they would fight for Rome, but they weren't Romans. So you had Germanic tribes, you had tribes from all different kinds of people groups that had been conquered by Rome. And if you're fighting for your conqueror, you may or may not have great allegiance. for for that empire you're fighting for. But you might not have any choice until you do have a choice, right? You don't have a choice until you do have a choice. And so the Roman army was not purely Roman any longer. It was very expensive to hire outside soldiers uh, to fill the need of the Roman military. And to pay these expenses, guess what Rome had to do? They had to raise taxes. You know, we might think today that, oh, back then they didn't have the same problems we have. They didn't have excessive taxation and stuff like that. No, they did. It was actually more excessive and more oppressive than what we have today. Because if you didn't pay your taxes in Rome, they wouldn't just fine you. You know, maybe take your property. They would, do, they would just kill you. <laughs> and then they would take your stuff. You know, anyways. Um, so they had to raise taxes. So oppressive taxes had an adverse and unplanned effect on the Roman economy. So high taxes drove up inflation, and high inflation drove many people from the cities. And as people fled the cities to try to find a way to live, to sustain themselves in the country, because there were shortages of all kinds of things, because... With high taxes and high inflation, that affected the ability of people to do business. So merchants and traders couldn't manufacture and produce goods and sell them as they could. So this disrupted the whole economy of the empire. And that caused cities to decline. And that decline in business and trade across the empire weakened it. It weakened its economy. Weakened its The morale of the people. It just contributed to the decline of the empire. The Huns were not the only nomadic people trying to find land in the Roman Empire. So there were many people groups that began to move into the regions of the Roman Empire. For example, the Angles and the Saxons. Sound familiar? The Angles and the Saxons moved into the area of Britain. There was another tribe there called the Jutes. But the Angles and the Saxons became what we know as Anglo-Saxons. Our language came from these people. This is where English comes from, ultimately, uh, in large part. In 410, so let's back up. Remember the Visigoths helped Rome defeat Attila? But in 410, the Visigoths sacked the city of Rome. Though it was not the capital of the empire at that time, it was still Rome. It had not been sacked like that. It was unthinkable in the day of the Caesars. Think of Julius. Think of Augustus. Think of Tiberius. It would have been unthinkable to think that some barbarian Tribes could come in and take over the city of Rome. It just would not happen. In 455, it was sacked again by the vandals. Yes, that's why we use that term. Vandalism. Why? That term stuck because the vandals, another Germanic tribe... Did such great damage. They burned Rome. They they spent two weeks basically ripping it apart, stealing. They stole all the treasures that Titus stole from the temple in Jerusalem in 70 AD. The vandals carried off from Rome. They burned the city. They took thousands of people as slaves. They took the treasures that the Romans had taken from countless other people and people groups. That was in 455. Finally, in 476, a Germanic war chief named Oda Acer, who had once been a commander in the Roman army. Remember? You do what your, your, your uh, higher up tells you to do until you don't have to anymore. Well, Odaacer was a commander in the Roman army. He fought for Rome. He took territory for Rome. He guarded and protected the empire. But in 476, he walked into Rome unopposed, and the 16 year old emperor who was on the throne gladly gave it to Odaacer. And that marked the end of the Western Roman Empire. By that time, the regions of Britain had already been conquered by the Angles and the Saxons and the Jutes. By that time, Spain and Gaul and North Africa had already been taken over and Rome no longer controlled those areas. The barbarian tribes had come in and had taken those areas before Rome, the city of Rome, and the Emperor of Rome actually surrendered and gave his place to this Germanic war chief named Oda Acer. It's interesting. He took all of the garb of the emperor and he sent it to the Eastern Empire. He said, "I don't want it." The fall of Rome was not like other great empires. It wasn't that day that Odaacer Acer and his barbarian army took Rome and conquered it. It was that Rome was already conquered. And in large part, the contributing factors were not just external, but they were internal. So this had been coming for a long time. It's why we can go back and we can look on the timeline where Rome was sacked in 410, it was sacked again in 455, and then Oda Acer comes in 476, and that's it. That's the end of the Roman Empire, the, the political military empire that we knew that we studied when uh, Caesar Augustus became the first emperor of the empire, not the first ruler. Remember, we had Caesar, who was a part of the first triumvirate. Julius Caesar, who conquered much of the territory that Rome had at its height in 98, much of that territory had been conquered by Julius Caesar, and it continued to just expand from there. So, the fall of Rome wasn't just because of external, but also internal factors. And The reality is it was those internal factors, it was that internal decline and decay that opened the door for those barbarian hordes, those tribes and those armies to come in and do what they did and ultimately defeat Rome militarily. Rome's moral decline no doubt played a role. Think of the years of bloodshed that created... An atmosphere where human life had no value. Now, when we think of Roman bloodshed, we think of things like the Colosseum. and We think of, you know, gladiators. And we think of blood sports that the Roman emperors and the Roman Senate used to, uh, you know, entertain the people. Give them free bread and give them entertainment. Uh, to keep them happy, and we keep raising their taxes, and they won 't notice until there wasn't anything left to give and, and and they couldn't just keep kicking that can down the road. And so all of that bloodshed, not not just in that sense, but but when you think about what Rome did, you know we talk about the terror that Attila the Hun was, but in reality, Julius Caesar conquered. The vast amounts of territory he conquered through sheer terror. It was submission or death. And if you willingly submit, you, you, you can have a good life in the Roman Empire. But if you oppose, you won't have a life. And so these emperors, with their military might, with their armies of iron. Remember the picture Daniel paints for us in that vision. Iron that crushes everything. That's what Rome did. And so this, this bloodshed just devalued human life. You Think about, it's hard not to think about our own culture today. I mean, we could, we could look at the first and the most obvious example to me is abortion. Think of the 60 plus million babies in this nation that have been murdered... For the sake of convenience. Now you go to all of the bloodshed that people participate in. Think of the kids who play video games that are so graphic. That are so realistic. In the bloodshed, in the death. It is a. It is just a devaluation of human life. So... What forces were at work in the Roman Empire devaluing human life? What forces do you think were at work in the Roman Empire to devalue human life? Huh? Yeah. But spiritually. Do you think there were spiritual forces at work to devalue human life? to devalue, demoralize that empire. They were pagan, so it wasn't real hard, but still. God used that empire. He used all four of those empires that that Daniel uh, talked about in that vision of Nebuchadnezzar. He used all four of those empires to prepare the world to bring forth his Messiah and then take the gospel to the ends of the earth, and he's still doing that today. That mountain is still filling the earth. It hasn't filled it completely. It's still filling it. And it will continue filling it until the earth is full. And the knowledge of the glory of God fills the earth as the waters cover the sea. But think about the powers that were at work to demoralize and dehumanize and devalue life. It's the same powers at work today. The same powers that reveled in the bloodshed of the Colosseum in the lack and devaluation of human life that you could just have a, a labor force and they were nothing more than just, it was just energy to build what we need to build. If that guy gets crushed under that rock, who cares? Bring another slave and put him right in his place. There was no value except a monetary value Mm-hmm. wherever there is a society that dishonors God that refuses to honor God it continues to decline and, yeah. and that was true for all those enemies. yeah right and this these empires had to they had to fall because that rock that was cut out without hands has already been cast into the earth and has already broken and ground all of those other empires to powder. Now think about that visual from Daniel's prophecy, where it says the gold, the silver, the bronze, the iron, the clay, was all ground to dust by that rock cut out without hands, and blown away like the chaff, and that last great empire gobbled up and assimilated into it all the other empires. That's exactly what Rome did. Exactly what Rome did. And so, in this attempt, so you think about the bloodshed, another aspect of Roman culture at that time was, was what had happened to marriage. Marriage was no longer sacred. Marriages were not considered sacred. There was a promiscuity, there was a promiscuous just a, a an attitude, a lifestyle in Rome, and there was no nothing sacred about those things that God holds sacred. It wasn't always like that, even in pagan Rome, even in pagan um, cultures. Marriage uh, is often held sacred, but Rome came to a place where Marriage was no longer sacred. Materialism had spoiled the masses. So as long as they could satisfy the masses with free stuff, free food, free entertainment, whatever it took to keep the masses happy, that's what they would do until they couldn't afford to keep the masses happy any longer. Does it sound familiar? I mean, how long can we pay our people to basically do nothing. How long can we as a society keep paying off people to keep voting us into power? And when you're not satisfied with that payoff, well, we'll give you another payoff. How long will that last? It'll last as long as we've got the money to be able to do it. But just like Rome, it took them 500 years to reach their end. We're not, we're not 500 years yet. Do we think we're any better than Rome? Just as a government, as, a, as an empire, if you want to use that term? No, we're not. Not if we forsake the God who raised us up. We'll fall just like Rome fell, and we'll fall the same way Rome fell, or worse, maybe. So in many ways, the attempt to maintain power and control over the masses had already set the stage for Rome's fall. Once they went there, it was hard for them to go back. And with the fall of the Western Roman Empire, Europe was plunged into what is commonly known as the Dark Ages. All right. What, any, any questions or thoughts up to this point? Do you see parallels with Rome and our own country? Yes. Uh, somebody from Cameron was talking today about a couple factories out there. They can't get any workers. They make chairs. They can't get any workers, so they're bringing them in from Mexico. Yeah. And they're paying their housing and everything else because they'll work. Yeah. But they can't find any in these areas. Right. Yeah. And, and that that was part of Roman culture there was a there was a segment of Roman culture that didn't believe they had to work in and and, um, and they didn't and they expected to just be taken care of in large part because they were too good to work because Rome had so many slaves you know the city of Rome, the vast majority of the population uh, many of them were slaves, and if they weren't slaves they were uh plebeians who were the lower class, the working class. And so, you know, those people in the upper classes who, who didn't work, who didn't believe they had to work, who had servants, who had people, um, that sense of entitlement um, was not sustainable. And if you think about our own culture today, we have done this with all kinds of people. People at the other end of the spectrum where we're just making them feel entitled. Uh, You know, the the most recent labor strikes. I mean, if you look at that, they feel entitled to a four-day work week. They feel entitled to all kinds of things. Uh, And they want more and more money, but they want us to keep buying their cars, but we can't afford to buy their cars because their cars are too expensive. Because who's ultimately going to pay the wages of those workers and pay for them to have a four-day work week versus a five-day work week? We will. Because they'll have to pass that cost along to the consumer. So that means your cars are going to cost more. Everything you have is going to cost more. And because there is such a disconnect in our culture... I mean, we, we do we do not teach we do here at KCCS, but in the public school systems they, they do not teach kids. Kids growing up don't understand how an economy works. They think they think it's just supposed to happen. Just that stuff magically appears at Walmart and HEB. I don't know how it gets there. I don't care. I don't care how it gets there. I just want to make sure it's there when I go in and I want to buy it, and I better have the money to buy it with. And right now, that that works. But what happens when it doesn't work? It could get pretty pretty ugly. Now, we're good post-millennialists, so we know that God is working, establishing His kingdom. But sometimes kingdoms have to fall in order for kingdoms to rise. You know, it's kind of like I've been watching with Andrea, our Favorite show to watch now is she she takes her medicine at night and then she doesn't want to go to bed right away. So when she takes her medicine, we watch the great British baking show. And I'd noticed that when they're proving dough for bread, they prove it. And then I don't know if it's all the doughs, but they'll take their fists and they'll pop that dough and make it collapse. Why do they do that? And then they prove it again. So in order for that bread to rise again, it's, it's, it's got to fall. There's got to be a collapse. And maybe, maybe God in his grace and his mercy will do that with America. Maybe he'll allow us to collapse so we can rise again and be proved even better than before. I don't know. But that's our hope. That's the way we should look at this. We shouldn't be hopeless. We should be hopeful. And we should be able to look at an empire like Rome and look at the things that contributed to its downfall and then look at our own culture and say, man, this looks very familiar based on what I'm reading in my history book here. And it is. And then when that empire fell, Europe was plunged into darkness. Now, there's a misnomer that it's not that all of Europe and all the world was plunged into darkness. But, but for the most part, that which was the Roman Empire really did experience uh, what we would call darkness. And we'll talk about that when we study the Dark Ages. But we're not going to start that tonight because that's too big of a subject. Um, We touched on it a little bit, I think, last week when we talked about Patrick and the Irish. Fascinating story there. All right, what else? Any other thoughts about the fall of the Western Roman Empire? Yeah, I was talking about the demonic forces that devalued human life and demoralized the culture where you know, just licentious and immoral behavior was was just common. You know. Um and those things that should be held sacred were no longer held sacred. You know, a lot of a lot in a lot of areas. Immorality, um, lying, cheating, stealing, all kinds of things, you know. That those those have their roots in the demonic. You know, Paul says, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities. But when a people give themselves over to those demonic influences, that's what our culture turns into. That's, that's I believe, what we're seeing in our culture today. We were once a culture founded in biblical truth, and it was biblical truth that that governed our actions, not just our policy and our government, but I mean, governed us personally, the morality and the the truth as presented in the scripture is what governed our people. If you think about it, for, for, for centuries, even before we had a constitution and declaration of independence, when the pilgrims came over, they came over for that exact purpose, to establish a city on a hill. That, those words came from the Puritans on the Mayflower. That, that language comes from them. And, and that's what they set out to do when they landed at Plymouth Rock was to create a city of light on a hill that the world would see. A, a city of religious freedom, a city of worship. And what the Puritans actually hoped, they actually hoped that the witness of Christ... And the worship of Christ in the new world would be so bright and would be such a witness that it would catch on in England. They didn't want to separate. They were not separatists. The Puritans were not separatists. They actually came over here in hopes that their witness would change the church in England. But they came over for that religious freedom and for that purpose to found a a country... Upon the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it was it was for centuries. It was until really most recently within the last within the last 150 years. I would say this country was solidly Christian in what governed us as a people. I, well, I think so. I think in a lot of ways, yeah, the, the church, we, we, there were, just like Rome, there's a lot of things that have happened in our history that people don't necessarily connect the dots, but just the church advocating to the government, the church allowing the government to be the entity that takes care of families, that takes care of the elderly, that takes care of the poor. We expect the government to do that now. We've abdicated to the government and said, that's the government's job. And that's not the government's job. Really, it's the church's job. But isn't it the church the people, we have for 150 years there began that decline mm-hmm. of taking the gospel to our neighbor. to our yeah. family. Yeah. Yeah. Teach our grandchildren, teach our neighbor to talk about Yes. At all and to talk about Him properly. At all, at all yeah. And part of that, too, is do- doctrine really does matter. Yeah. So if you think about, you know, let's, let's not say 150 years. In my lifetime, when I came to faith in Christ, you know, I'm, I was born in 1961. I came to faith in Christ in 1984. And, uh, and in 1984, with no church background whatsoever, I wasn't raised in church, when I came to Faith in Christ in 1984, for the most part, the Christians that I was in fellowship with before I got connected to any church, uh, the Christians I was connected with were anti-tradition, anything that, and, and, and they would say this, if it's traditional, then we need to throw it out. Um, and, and doctrine was a dirty word. Doctrine, we don't, we don't believe in doctrine. Doctrine's dirty. Because they'd thrown the baby out with the bathwater because they just saw the what they would call the dead traditional churches who were steeped in doctrine, in their opinion, and dead traditions, in their opinion. So they thought, well, doctrine and dead traditions are bad. Let's throw them out. And just in the last several decades, even that, that attitude is still around. It's still around. And it's really wrong. It's, it's, it's in error. What we should do is throw out bad doctrine and throw out bad tradition. But to say that all doctrine and all tradition is bad is you're, you're, you're making the same mistake. Just on You've fallen into the ditch on the other side of the road is what you've done. Yes, that, yes. That it threw out the authority of the word of God. Right. And, and, and if we do that, then there is nothing to stand on. That's right. And so what happens is your Christianity becomes almost exclusively experience based. Because I don't I don't care about higher criticism. I don't care about doctrine. That doesn't affect me. Oh, actually it does affect you greatly. Because now what do we have? We've got great movements in Christendom that were started uh, during the Reformation who have now become woke jokes who no longer believe the Bible, who no longer, they use the Bible just because they call themselves Christian, but they don't believe the Bible. They pick and choose the sins that they want to accept as not sinful and they don't care what God says about it. And so how do we get to that place? Well, we get to that place because we devalue and we demoralize a people. And now it's not God determining what the values are anymore. It's the society. It's the culture. And the church has allowed that to happen because the church feared the culture. And she bought into the higher criticisms that, well, you know, well, maybe the Bible isn't, maybe it isn't inerrant. Maybe there is error in the Bible. Maybe maybe those are just things that men back in those days wrote because they didn't really understand human culture and human society. They didn't know what Sigmund Freud knew. They didn't know what our great psychiatrists and psychologists know today. But now we know so much more than they know. And we can use the Bible... To help us, but certainly the Bible can't be our guide because the Bible is antiquated. It gets too many things wrong. Because surely you don't believe in a God who would send people in to conquer another people and actually approve of them being killed. No, it had to fall because it was prophesied. It was God's word. It had so to fall. I'm, I'm just curious, you know, like we should take responsibility as Christians in the right kind of way. Yes. But it seems like there's still an aspect of... Divine cycles. providence. No, well, I mean, of course, but I was going to say cycles of history yeah. to where it's, you know, kind of a classic generational reality that, you know, hard times produce a certain kind of people. Yeah. Yes. I absolutely agree. Yes. I absolutely do, and I don't think it's accidental that we're you know 500 years on the other side of the Reformation, I, and I do believe history is cyclical. I it, I do not believe it's linear. And and I believe history is cyclical, just like the climate is cyclical, just like everything in God's creation, I believe, is cyclical. And, you know, we always talk about history repeats itself. Well, history repeats itself, Solomon tells us, because man forgets. And man forgets because man is born in sin. And until man is born again and his mind is renewed to the truth, he's going to default to his sin nature. And that cyclical, those cycles of history are part of, I believe, the created order. And, and, and this is where, as Christians, we should never be hopeless. We should be hopeful. And if we happen to be living in one of those cycles of history where we're cycling down instead of cycling up, that, you're, that you have no control over that. That God appointed when you and I would have our time of visitation on this earth and we've been put here for such a time as this. It's it's regardless of where God has placed us, we have the same charge. We're called to be faithful. That's to, yes. That's to tell people mm-hmm. who Jesus is. Yeah. He'll be yes. the increase. We have no idea about that. He will, he knows his people. He will bring them yeah. to so that. Because it will cycle back. Yes, and we know it will because we we know what the prophecy says. The rock's already been cut out. It's already been cast into the earth. It is growing into that mountain. It's growing. And just like everything else that grows, there are cycles of growth. There's ebb and flow. I mean, we see it right now. We're in autumn. We're in fall, moving into winter. So we're seeing literally the leaves fall off our trees and the trees look as though they're dying, but they're not dying. They're going through that cycle of dormancy so that they can spring forth with new life and new growth, and it's part of their growth cycle. And I do believe history has the same cycles. Nations have the same cycles. Yes, everything has that. And we should learn from everything around us that that's the world God created. And, And not be hopeless when we see these things, but it should motivate us to be faithful to, to be faithful, to preach the gospel, to live the gospel. Because whatever cycle of we're in, whatever place of the cycle we're in, the gospel is the only answer. It's the only answer. Yeah. I mean, you know, would you, what do you want to be? You want to be the guy who, gained, who who gained the whole world, but dies only to realize he lost his soul? Or do you want to be that guy who goes through hard times and realizes... There's gotta be something greater than myself here. There's gotta be someone, something, and, and God in his grace, allows us to go through things that cause us to cry out to him. And maybe we lose the world, but we gain eternal life in Christ. What would you rather have? Who would you rather be? A great world. Yeah, I you know, I always think about that video that Bob Sorge made, you know. Do you you don't want God to leave you alone. If God leaves you alone, that's not a good thing. You don't want God to leave you alone. No matter how painful his intervention in your life may be, you don't want God to leave you alone. Because the alternative is eternally horrid.